The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey everybody, it's the, welcome to the winemakers. I'm John Myers, I'm sitting across from Sam Katuri, finally. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. I'm 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 here. Obligatory pour number one. <laughs> that took almost a full glass till I got any yeah, sound you gotta coming get, out. You got to get okay. under the mic. Sam, I, I, sorry. Let me tell everyone. I took over for Sam on the obligatory pour this week, and I just did a horrible job. We'll, 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 we'll make it better. We Brian have Casey. We have Thirty-five uh, minutes to make up. For it. <laughs> Bart, we have some very full glasses now. Oh my God. And Bart Hansen with us. How you doing, Bart? What's going on? I'm good, John. Thanks. And we even have namesake. Of Dan, yeah, there you go. Shatter. I did that at your place. Remember? Yes. It's just like a, I think I broke one, man. Yeah, Kyle Harris, the as as close as I can come to your last name, man. Me but, too. But quite frankly, <laughs> your family is known as the ones who planted the first grapes in this area. Are they not? You know, there's a lot of debate there, and thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. Um, with Augustin Harris, the, of course, he is considered the father of the California wine industry, but there were definitely people growing grapes before that. Um, the missionaries certainly were making wine from the Vitis Lambrusca, um, but as far as Venice Vinifera, I think we can all raise a glass to Augustin Harris and give him some credit for that. There you go. Cheers. All right. And uh, so, Sam, you said you had some interesting yeah, news from the vineyard today. So, so we, what's going I, on? I, I sat um, with the two top viticulture people for Enterprise Vineyards, um, who we're just going to have on at some point, because they're going to be able to explain all this stuff so much better than me. <laughs> um, but, but what Cassie and Lauren were saying this morning is, as hot as it's felt this summer, and the summer's felt really hot, we're about dead middle as far as what they call degree days for the last in the last five or six years were kind of running a, a, about average, uh, and the the explanation for that was that we had a very cold, wet spring, and so even though it's been scorching uh, for the last month or so, month and a half, um, we're we're actually ten days behind where we were last year. Really, and uh, that far, huh? And berry size is really small out there. Um, so even though there's there's good plant growth and there's a, there's a pretty heavy crop load as far as the bunches and the size of the bunches, uh, the berries are small. So um, interesting, interesting. Nice concentration of fruit. Well, we'll see. The the, the thing that's happening right now um, is verasion is going really slowly. Just and turning the colors, turning nicely, colors nicely, but slowly. Yeah, huh? and and you don't really want it to go slow. You want it to go fast. You, when it goes fast, it means that it, there's, it's all kind of doing it at the same time, uh, and it also means then that it's all ripe at the same time. So, which is uh, a very important thing. That's that's what the wine the winemakers want it all ripe. The all exact same ripe, all the sa- all the same time. Well, you yeah. you always want you always want things to be even, you know, and uh, and and conforming, so to speak, you know, throughout the vineyard. You don't want green bunches along with purple bunches. Uh, no, not at all. Certainly not in my wine. 
<laughs> or how about you, Brian? I don't think you'd like that either. No, I don't. But, but I, what I think they're saying is, is so because if it was ripening unevenly, then you're going to have to go through, do a pick, and then a week later go through, do another. Uh, or is that how it's? Or you're no, just picking? You're no, just, it means we'll drop it. You'll just drop. You'll just drop a bunch of. Is there no, yeah. Wow, your crop is good enough that you you can drop. It doesn't. A lot. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what how big the crop is. Um, what matters is. You how well what? evenly the fruit is ripened. So uh, the winemakers, and I'm sure Bart would would verify this, is that they'd rather have half the amount of fruit if it's all the same level of ripeness than bring in extra fruit but not have it be the quality that you need. Um, so you know that's what's sort of the the driving um, force right now, and as far as what we're doing in the vineyards is how to get that crop ripe at the same time and deal with, you know, there's, there's been mildew issues in places where there isn't usually. Um, they're talking about possibly mildew. This is like the downer segment, sorry, to start this way. But they're talking about like mildew that's... Um, you know, powdery that's, mildew. That's, that's more, you know, mutating to be able to handle higher temperatures. Because in the old days, you'd talk about mildew and then you get a 100-degree day and you're like, great, the mildew's all dead. Uh, and that's not happening the way that it usually does this year. So there's it's uh, been a challenging, seems to be a, a been a challenging few last couple of months uh, on the vineyard side. So you know this is this is the time where the rubber meets the road. This is when um, you know both grape growers and winemakers in a year that might have some challenges to it um, have to work that much harder and that much smarter to to make you know to, to make wine that meets the standards that we're looking for. Uh, you know, this is what, you know, maybe what they call a, a winemaker's vintage. <laughs> <laughs> is that your, why the laugh on that one? Well, I, I, I think what he's saying is that, well, first of all, and I think along all price points that this is the same issue, right? I mean, at a high-end uh, high bottle, end bottle price, um, winemakers and growers are going to be a lot more... Um, have their eye on it a lot higher. I'm sorry, guys, losing my thought here. Closer. They're going to have to work a lot closer because on a higher priced wine, you have to be a lot more demanding from your grower on the quality of the grapes you get. Sure. And something at a 12 to $14, winemakers will say that they have the same demands, but a lot of times the grape grower is not as willing to um, work with them as much because they're not getting paid as much for grapes and every pass through the vineyard as Sam can attest right. cost a lot of money so I have a quick ways. question for for you Bart as far as varietals are there certain ones that are just flat out easier to bring to ripeness all at the same time are there ones that you're you know you know your Syrah is gonna take a little bit longer to all come to full ripeness is your cab vineyard coming to full ripeness all at the same time uh, you know, Zin is always the variety that is um, looked at as not evening, uh, not ripening evenly, right? Sure. Um, and then Grenache would probably be the closest to that. Um, white grapes, it's not really uh, an issue to my knowledge. Um, Cab Merlot, Cabernet Franc, they all kind of ripen just naturally pretty evenly. And there's, you know, the other difference is when you're talking about a Cab vineyard versus a, a Zin vineyard, the Cab has more value so it, immensely it makes more yeah, sense immensely. to go through and, and spend more time manipulating that that vine and that fruit to uh to get it to that ripeness because 
you know, when you're paying $10,000 a ton for Cabernet, uh, it, you know, it has to be a $100 bottle and it has to have, you know, meet certain you know, expectations in both the winemaker and the consumer. So in those cases, you can go through and cut out the green fruit. But when it comes to Zinfandel and, you know, uh, especially most of the Zinfandel in you California, there's, there's not the, there's just not the economics behind no. dropping that much fruit. Also, in Zin, you kind of want that wild, you know, sort of unpredictability. Uh, get a little, you know, and that's what can often build, uh, you know, complexity in Zinfandel. Yeah, Com- complexity and character. Yeah, pepper, that pepper note that we all want in Zin. Uh, what do you guys do? So if there's mildew, is it just about canopy management? Or you now it's like, you oh, no, wind, now, now we got to do sulfur. We got to put sulfur on them? Or what, you're, what are you doing? using sulfur through the sort of highest risk growth, you know, that's the, through the early spring and early summer. Uh, depending on the vineyard, on a cycle of usually, you know, at most extre- extreme would be like once a week. Um, and then usually, you know, kind of go from there less often. But yeah, you got you to do sulfur. Um, there are some other uh, organic uh, mildew management. And then there's a lot of, uh, you know, not organic mildew management that's really effective. The systemics that, um, you know, get into the, the vine structure. Um, right. But this time of year, you, you can't really do that. This time of year, it's it's another thing. You're over, you, yeah. You, you cut out, yeah. yeah. And you can't just cut all the all the leaves from the top and let the sunshine down. No, because no, then yeah. you lose your campy. Da- dappled right. sunlight. Dappled, dappled sunlight, sunlight. <laughs> right? As always. And 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 once the grapes have mildew on them, they have mildew on them. They're, That's they're it. Not going yeah. away. So what do you, what do you do then? You just drop the, all that fruit. Yeah. yeah, the fruit gets dropped. Hopefully. Um, you know, and hopefully when they're actually picking, if there's still some out there, the growers or the pickers see it and they don't pick it or they pick it and drop it on the ground. Well, and Cook was always telling me they were turning on the fans and airing it out. I you mean, know, if it's, if it's, you know, if, if, if it rains. Right. During, that's, that's, yeah. that's leading up to harvest. Okay. And uh, that, um, <clears throat> I imagine that even David Cook would admit that, uh, has, more efficacy in making vineyard owners and winemakers feel good than it does in actually <laughs> keeping the vineyard dry or getting rid of mildew. Well, but you feel yeah. like you're doing something because at that point you got nothing. To, there's nothing. I mean, you, people you, have people have flown helicopters over vineyards trying to dry them out over the over um, after rain. You know, wow. and like Sam says, does it really do anything other than you know make people feel good? Right. Exactly. Is there a specific flavor profile that you might be able to recognize in a wine that? did have mildew in the vineyard after production? I would say typically you get a lot of it in Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio would be, but, but that's more like that noble rock kind of. Well, that's, that's um, botrytis. Yeah, botrytis. So you get more like that honey character. But like mildewy, like if someone just happened to, they were poor about their selection and just got that in there, would it taste kind of funky? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the first thing that would happen is you would get a lot of unripe flavors because the mildewed fruit doesn't ripen. You know, if there's mildew on the stem or the 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 rachis, meaning the you know the stems inside the bunch, um, it's going to cut off nutrients going to those those berries, and they're not going to ripen. So that's that would be the one in, big thing. That yeah. would be that would be uh, an indicator as far as flavor wise. I, I mean, I imagine there'd be some added unbalanced funk to mildewy wines. I mean, the goal that just we have Ryan. is you know between to get the, funk the vineyard. Uh, between the vineyard, the harvest, and the crush crews, you know, on the sorting table, you right. should 
even if there is, you should be able to get most to the point where you're dealing with, you know, parts per million, and I don't think it matters, but um, you should be able to get most before. And if you can't, it means that you're doing, like, mechanical harvesting and giant... Or that you just don't care. I mean, that means that you're just pulling it. You're right. Right. Yeah. Trust me, uh, anyone listening out there, you're not going to get the moldy grapes from either of these two, uh, (laughs) or either of these three guys that are on the... uh, Speaking to you today, that's for sure. Well, I I think... (laughs) At the level we're talking, you're not going to get it anywhere uh, on uh, that. You know, I mean, and well, we, we've we've had some interesting, uh, inexpensive wines, and then you know, we, we that's one of the things that we focus on, Kyle. You know, I mean, we're trying to demystify, you know, the, the wine and how the psychology of the wine. And this will tell you one thing about it: we've been talking about corks and screw tops, and then of course. Uh, <laughs> and thank you very much. Good one, Bart. And uh, and then and canned wines. Well, the the Cork uh, Council is doing a test in London right now. So you put headphones on, and you hear either a pop, or you hear a screw top being, t- and then Rack. and then bop, 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 and, the, and then the pour, and they're testing whether or not you think because you hear that pop you think the wine tastes better and so and now if it if it comes out incorrect you'll never hear the study and right, of i mean the court people will lose that study right away study no what study we didn't do a study <laughs> no not at all but it's interesting who posted that picture on um uh, Facebook of the axe. I did. That was my that was nice. That was very cool. It was, it was a good article it, it, for people that wanted to know something about cork harvesting and how corks are it processed. Was great. It, it was really nice. Yeah. yeah, I got a kick out of that. Of one. course, it so. was put out by the cork company, so <laughs> well, but that's okay. And they're you know I mean obviously they're getting hit. Um, they're getting hit by um, by the can. They're getting hit by the, the screw top and. I, I don't think rubber corks are going anywhere, or com- or composite, right? You know. So, but uh, we also were talking about uh, Kyle. You sell a lot of wine, though. Mm-hmm. What are, what are what are the people that you come in contact with as far as closure? Yeah, um, you know, you deal with a lot of different segments of of sure. consumers. It, Talk about it. What, rarely what comes up. Um, I feel like at a certain level, the romance of wine and the closure just has to be cork. It has to be a real cork. It, for whatever reason, means for the consumer that it is a legitimate bottle of wine that is worth the price that they paid for it. Personally, as a consumer, my only care is that the wine tastes good. I don't really... Yeah. It, it really doesn't matter to me what the label says. I mean, we're drinking a Shiner right now with a white no screw, co- screw right. top. <laughs> it tastes delicious. And that is all that matters to me. But I think that an educated and uneducated consumer really does put a lot of value in packaging. Um, I think foil matters, paperweight on a label matters, cork matters, and really the, one of the only ways you're ever going to get a cork taint is with uh, a true cork. Which is unfortunate. <laughs> well, but, but again, as like we've said, the the percentage of cork taint has gone down significantly in the past five years, and um, there that is that immensely. is the bear. I mean, that is the cork company's number one focus is you know reducing that yeah. and well, being and oh, sustainable. And you you hear that all the time. Ooh, this is corked. This is you know, and and I, people don't know whether it is or isn't. Well, no, I think what you 
hear more than that, John, is people say, oh, I don't care for this wine, and they don't even know what corked is. Okay. Uh, yeah, maybe they're just um, trying to put on airs, okay? Because I heard somebody do, do it the other night in a restaurant. It was like, oh, this is cork, man. It's just no good. And it could have been. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not tasting the wine. So, oh, yeah. well, Brian, had, you know, you're... I actually bought a bottle at Oliver's the other day, a Rebola Giallo. I bought it early in the morning, brought it home, um, put it in the fridge, and then uh, come dinner time, open it up, and it was cork. So I, I drove back there and just swapped it out, and it was fine. We've got... Very rarely does that happen in the restaurant. I think we had one bottle in the last five months that I can remember that we actually had a where a bottle was corked. Um, any re, any retailer worth buying a bottle of wine from will return the wine, no questions asked. Because one thing that I have found with a corked bottle is it is so slight sometimes that one person picks it up and the other person then is reminded of what a corked bottle of wine smells like, and then they pick it up after the fact that someone had mentioned it. Yeah. And I feel like that's um, common throughout wine is, um, you know, one person smells black currants, and I don't really know how many times I've ever smelt a black currant, but sure, I agree with you because uh, <laughs> that's what you said. Right. Well, and the other thing is that everybody has different thresholds for everything, mm -hmm. whether it's cork taint or, um, you know, uh, Britannomyces or something like that. Sure. So, um, and then to your point is, yeah, what what does black currants taste like? <laughs> well, you hear so many d different descriptors, um, and I'd like it when people bring in, you know, their tasting notes, and they've they've written them so. I mean, some people, you know, th this was picked at a certain time at night at this, um, you know. Um, but so you got to write something, sugar, right, John? I mean, it's it's well, you do. No. But you, well, that's what I I, see, I don't agree. I think if you put on there, this is good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, really? And let that's people right. decide for themselves what the wine tastes like. I would buy that wine because I would like the attitude that that wine, that wine growers bring or the winemakers bring into that bottle is, hey, you know what? It's good wine. Do you oh, drink once, it and enjoy Once again, it. we're demystifying that. You know, we're getting rid of that concept. Yeah. You sure. know, it's just, it's, it makes no sense to me to spend a lot of time on tasting notes. But yeah, I, I've, I've had some pretty extensive ones. You've sat, you've sat in a tasting in sixteen six hundred, John, and uh, you, you know my tasting notes that I put in front of people when they sit down, talk about the vineyard. They say right. where it's from, right. uh, and uh, you know I'm happy to have that conversation when people come in and they go, "Oh, this tastes like so and so or whatever." Um, it smells like wine, but that's <laughs> it's not it's it's not the most important part of the conversation no. because you know like like Kyle said if you don't know what black currant smells like and I say that that's a tasting note you're you either gonna pretend go oh, yeah that's and and then you've you know but you've in doing that you've shut down part of the communication with that person or they're gonna have no idea you know think you're out of your mind and not smell that and and then again you're like shutting down these things i'd, I'd rather just open it up and have I, I like it when people say oh this is what i smell in here and you know what i do nine times out of ten i'll i'll, I'll grab a glass off of the wall and I'll, I'll pour some for myself and be like oh i've i've never heard somebody say that before let me let me think yeah. about that from the other way. I, I like the power of suggestion coming from the consumer across the table to me as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, you know, on my back label, I like to talk about the vineyard a little bit because I try to minimize the amount of, amount of text. 
but you know, where's the vineyard from? How was the wine made? Yeah, <laughs> uh, the labels are expensive. No matter how, Lab- much, how many how many letters you put yeah. on the back, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, and, and then it's how big it is and stuff. Yeah. But but I like to use if I'm going to use any descriptors, they're ones that other people who have tasted the wine have used consistency or consistently. And then the other thing is in very broad strokes. So it's not, you know, Ethiopian pears, but it's stone fruit. Sure. Stone fruit um, is you know. it, but but you can taste peach when you when you drink, you know, like the Chenin Blanc. That's one of the things that comes at me. Stone fruit is perfect. Uh, but when I when I when I get oh, this is hints of tobacco and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, it doesn't. It's not to me. But, but anyway. I'm sure Kyle's in the same boat I am. A lot of times when we talk about wine, it, we're telling a story of some, it's the winemaker, the vineyard. I think 90% of the time I sell wine, I'm not even mentioning flavor profiles. I mean, I know if people are looking for it, what we talk about is in terms of deeper, darker, or lighter. And in white wines, you're talking about something with a little more acidity or something with a little more richness to it. And then, you, then after that, it's kind of more about, you know, who's making the wine and where they're growing the grapes. And um, uh, sure, I think that also um, when you reach a certain level, I think a wine should always bring value, whatever price point that is. And every wine has a profile, aromatically, texturally, um, you know, on the palate, what that is, and it can really confuse. A, a, a buyer and a consumer with what they're actually getting. And if a bottle of wine costs $150 and they're ordering steak, but that bottle of wine happens to be Pinot Noir, maybe you should direct them into a different varietal, right. specifically because of what they're you know going to be pairing the food with. And again, wine is mystifying and it's mystical. And in order to demystify and bring it kind of back down to earth the best way to do that i think is not talking about gooseberries and right you listen to this show yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll tell you about it yeah. you know is it hard to um cold call well and, and yes do what you do yeah let's talk about yeah because um, we talked sure, about you got an interesting air. job yeah Describe so your, uh, i i have a, a history of selling a lot of wine over the phone and it all started with a company called montesquieu where i was handed a stack of leads and it was essentially... Were those the Glengarry Lee? Yeah, so yes. I was just going for A, that, B, C, man. <laughs> and I wasn't drinking much coffee at the uh, beginning of my career there, he if got, you know what I mean. He got the, st- the steak knives. <laughs> yeah. But um, I worked there, cold leads, people hanging up on me constantly. And then I um, moved to an on- uh, online retailer that sold wine that it was highly in demand for high net worth individuals. And... It's important to, you know, make them feel comfortable. People love wine and they love spending exorbitant amount of their disposable income on wine. Yes. (laughs) Thank you all for doing that. Um, Well, and they like to talk about wine. And it's their favorite subject. And I like to think that my calls to the consumers, they're not cold calls. These people are established collectors of the wineries that I'm calling them from. And this is the best phone call of their week. They get to talk about their favorite subject, and they get to hear it from a guy that knows a bit about it. And if they want to know what the wine tastes like, sure, I'll be able to tell them or lie through my teeth about soil composition and canopy management because that's not my thing. But I will get, I will get a laugh, which I can, you know, 
basically use that as my um, sex cells because I, I, they can't see me. I can't pour the wine through the phone. I've tried to do it. I broke a few phones doing it. But at, at um, you know, a selling point over the phone, it is impulsive, which works really well in my favor. Um, and it is fun. I am not, and nor is any winemaker or wine salesman or vineyard manager saving any lives with a bottle of fermented grape juice. We're just here to provide a fun recreational beverage for you. And Man, you just destroyed my whole concept of <laughs> selling wine. You're not saving lives. You're not. No, it's and, and I feel like a lot of changing lives. Yeah, changing now lives. that Make, is a good thing. Making lives better, absolutely. But I feel like um, they're often is a disconnect with wine salesmen. Sommeliers often sometimes take themselves far too seriously. What? And and I, I'm sorry <laughs> to Brian Casey and, and uh, Bart, but I, uh, I think that a lot of people in the wine industry really need to recognize that, that we're here just to provide a, a good time. And I think, I think that's true. I've seen a shift actually in Psalms just over the last five years that it used to be kind of this intimidating thing where, you know, people like, oh my God, the Psalms come to the table and, you know, he could stuff a $300 bottle down these people that were just wanting to spend $70 on a bottle of wine. But um, I think the, I think it's a good thing the younger Psalms these days really want to make people feel comfortable um, in, in their purchases. They don't want to intimidate people. They want you to have something that pairs nicely with your food. Um, and if that means that they don't make as much money at the end of the night, but they feel good about themselves, I think I've seen that shift happening, sure. and I, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. How do you how do you do the not intimidating psalm at a place like Sante, where you're in a suit, and you know it's the whole thing is is you know kind of in in hushed tones, and not to say that there's anything yeah. wrong with that style of dining. I love it. We're doing a dinner there that'll be done. That's by right. The time. That's is, right. This is on the air, but um, it is one of those places that has held on to some of the sort of sanctimony of, of the wine experience. But at the same time, I mean, you're dealing with the same, essentially the same customers you were dealing with than any other Well, it's changing, though, Sam. And that's why I, you'll see now the linen is gone. Oh, really? Okay. Um, they're starting, trying to modernize the restaurant, and they're noticing that people aren't really as um, into that um, experience as they were in the past. And it, right. it, has, it has to do with somewhat with millennials coming up that they want, they want the same uh, quality of service and the same quality of food and wine, but just in a different atmosphere, a more right. casual atmosphere. So do you loosen your tie? I mean, you, you, Yeah, you loosen your tie. <laughs> you wear uh, uh, thong, Shades. thongs yeah. uh, instead of your shoes. No, what it is, for me, it's verbiage. Flip-flops. Yeah, flip-flops, sorry. <laughs> I don't um, need to know what you have under your suit. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's about verbiage when you approach the table, and it's, it's letting people know that, hey, I'm here to help you, and, whether, and, and I even tell people this, whether it be that you're looking for a glass of wine or a bottle of wine, I'm happy to help you choose something that'll go well with your meal. And that way they know that, you know, I'm not going to start talking about DRC wines like right off the top, like, hey, you, you guys need to get some Dujag, and then we're going to spend a grand here. It's like, if you guys are just looking for a glass of wine, um, let me know. And we have all these different wines here, anything ranging from, ranging from the 16600 uh, that I was selling uh, to a woman that had lamb last night, um, all the way up to, you know, you want a glass of Costa Brown, and you want a glass of Screaming Eagle, and, and you know those people when they come in. You know the people that want to spend money on wine and those are the people right. that you instantly bump up to that verbiage where it's like hey this we got this really cool stuff right here and you know the guy's either a collector he's got a seller at home and and he wants to hear 
you know, someone of like mind talk That's to them the about. Thing. Sell those he guys w- some 16600 too, though. Right. He wants <laughs> the Grenache, though, the Grenache, the Grenache right. They right. want to hear that. Right. So, so when they want to, it's just fine. You know, not like, like you said, um, I've never paired. Uh, I really don't think that, you know, I, I drink red wine with everything. You know, just because I'm going to have fish doesn't mean I can't have a nice red wine. And for me, uh, you know, if you if you start steering me in a certain direction, I can listen, to, certainly. I mean, and, and I have. Um, and I've learned a lot on it. Uh, the idea here is that I want, you know, I would love to be able to afford some of those really nice wines. I just got something from... Um, Benchmark, they must have bought somebody's collection because they had just had a shitload of Costa Brown. And, man, I mean, you know, it's expensive. And the Screaming Eagle's ridiculous. Well, I think that um, an established brand such as Costa Brown, Screaming Eagle, you know, the cult-level wines. Is Costa Brown a cult-level? Is it? Is it? I think it has a f- cult following for sure. It might not. Yeah, for Pinot Noir, it does. I, does it? I don't. Okay. I don't think it has cult level pricing as far as Cabernet Pinot Noir. Sh- in my opinion, should not be three digits in California. No, not at all. Um, Costa not Brown, even high more two. more power to you. You guys have figured it out, and you get the price that you are well, charging. I, I damn near bought one just. Well, see I can recommend some well, that are was like, well, <laughs> fractions of the price. And I think that that is... Um, Do what, you know Benchmark? Absolutely. They're uh, one of the biggest retailers in in the area, and they also are a distributor, right? Yeah. Um, so I, They buy collections. They buy, they buy private yeah. collections. Yeah. So now you have to worry about how was this wine stored? Just because it says Costa Brown on the label and it's really pretty, was it in the back of a Volvo for two weeks? You know, this is important. This sounds like part of your sales call. Absolutely, <laughs> because you know, with with um, online retailers selling wines at um, at a discount that are on Wine Searcher, oftentimes that's a black market wine that is not guaranteed. And if you want a wine that is a serious wine, you better understand, especially with any age on it, that it was stored properly throughout its entire life. Because three weeks in a garage can destroy the wine and now you've spent $80 on a bottle that is vinegar that is vinegar and probably even in its purest form worth 40 and John John has had experience with poor storage, so he knows exactly. I, what I'm I have. About. I, I've ruined a whole lot of silver oak and all kinds of things. It was right. ruined before you got it. <laughs> I just say that. Yes, you did. But, but you know, the th- <laughs> that's a good call. Point is, it was. It changed so much. Um, <laughs> there are there are a number of wineries in the neighborhood that have changed. Uh, you know, over the period, you know, I mean, when I was coming out here as a tourist, I really particularly liked several different wines. I, N- I, now it doesn't happen that way. I, I think you've changed as much of any of those right. wineries have changed. Probably. That's true. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And, 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 you know, wineries um, try to change stylistically also. There are wineries that you know, right. were uh, in old families that um, were st- kind of stuck in what their production was. 
and they try to modernize and they bring in someone new to direct the winemaking and it changes the style. And if you're familiar with that wine, sometimes it's hard to get on board with the new style. That's right. And that, you know, can be said about a whole bunch of companies. And in that's the, in exactly the, what I'm talking about right there. I mean, somebody, it has changed and it doesn't fit me anymore. Well, I think that a lot of producers are looking to do what every winery is doing, and that is sell out. And I, um, I think the consumer is looking for a very consistent product. And the one thing that is great about wine is that it's vintage specific. So if you want consistency, bottle year after year, bottle after bottle, you will have to do some sort of manipulating to get that consistency where we are blessed in an area that... Essentially, you'll get a fantastic bottle of wine if you don't cut corners every vintage, and it will be vintage specific. But I have I have a theory about red blends. Why red blends were have become so popular, and it has to do with that consistency of that sure. cuvee style of the sure. winery. That you know they have a little more tools to craft the wine every year that can make it sort of user friendly to those people that liked it the year before and the year before. And they have no patience either. So they want to be able to take the cork out within weeks of it arriving. Right. And I highly encourage that because the more corks that are getting taken out of bottles, the more they got to buy. More right? they buy. Yeah. 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 I and can we too. just mention what we're drinking? Uh, I don't think we even talked about it. We oh, mentioned yeah. that we're drinking a shiner that's got a white screw cap on it, which is Bart's uh, Shannon Blanc, Blanc that I've been talking about. And you are going to be bottling this when 18 days 18, 18 days. days and that's um, how many you're going to be what are you going to we're going to bottle 175 cases and uh we'll probably be selling it on the 19th day um, <laughs> and, and i'll be opening it on the 20th right day. because i do understand bottle shock and the theory behind that but quite frankly if the wine tastes good it's only going to start tasting better after it's been bottled, right? Mm -hmm. So and sometimes if, you just got to sell it. And sometimes you just got to sell it. And and I probably won't be selling it literally the day after. But I, as much as I understand bottle shock, and um, it's not necessarily doesn't mean the wine's bad. I mean, if you as the winemaker or you as the consumer um, taste it and you think it's good, more power to you, right? Why is this wine so anticipated? Because uh, Brian's been building, Brian. <laughs> building it up since Hype we started. Hype machine, Brian this. Casey. Yeah. <laughs> and and God He's bless him. A good, uh, God bless him. Good job at it, man. You know, he really just, is. I I re I've always liked Bart Shannon Blanc, and he's been getting it from Clarksburg. But this one, he got he sourced a different vineyard, and it's there's something to be said for being in where you see the grapes come in. You you get to taste it when it's just been put in the its vessel, whether it be the concrete or the oak or the stainless steel. And then when you actually get to sample it and taste it, and Bart lets you do a little blend. Uh, um, so I got a personal attachment to the wine, and not only that, but it's it's freaking good. It's amazing it's with right. too many Beautiful. oysters. I'll right. tell you that. Yeah, right. Beautiful wine. Yeah. Beautiful wine. So, so and then Sam Sam went shopping. I think yeah, on, on the way here. So I did something that I never do, which is buy wine at the supermarket, just because. I was there, no, I was getting lunch, it. and I never do it. So I wanted to see what would happen and just kind of like went in blind. What would happen? What would happen? <laughs> what I would get. And what you charged me and for and this? Yeah. They took well, your money and you left with money. a bottle wait, of wine. Wait, I have to pay for wine? <laughs> what? what? Wine doesn't cost anything. Um, I can't pronounce it. It must be good. <laughs> so what I did is I went and I looked at Whole Foods in Sonoma, the chilled wine section. Like if I was grabbing a wine for lunch right now, what would I buy? And... I, I, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. This one, I, I didn't know the producer. It's Domaine de Fonte Sante. Sure. I think that's how you'd say sure. that. It's, uh, it's 
French Rosé, um, Gris de Gris. I don't know where in where it's from. It's a, but the reason I bought it is it was a Kermit Lynch imported wine. Here, here. They're it serious. A, it had a Kermit Lynch sticker on the back. I think it was fourteen dollars. But if if I'm in a wine shop if, and I'm supermarket and I need to buy a bottle of wine. Uh, I'm going to buy a Kermit Lynch bottle if there is one nine times out of ten. Why is that? Uh, you just, it's a, they're just it's a really good palette that you can trust. Okay. It's a really good distributor. Are they nationwide? They have, they have ones nationwide. You know, different distributors carry them as an importer. But Kermit Lynch went to France in the 70s and found all these little producers and regions that were making wine that didn't get anywhere and brought them in at and great values. And a, a great palate. So, you know, it's something that, that I can trust, whether, you know, whether I'm in Whole Foods in Sonoma or, you know, anywhere, Austin, well, anywhere. Well, and um, that's for our listeners. Right. So, so Kermit, you see Kermit Lynch, Kermit like the frog, L-Y-N-C-H, wine merchant, and it has a little picture of a guy on a couple guys on a boat dressed like it's the Middle Ages. And it says, good wine is a necessity of life for me. Yes. Tom, a quote from Thomas Jefferson. So yeah, if you see that on the back of a bottle, you know you're going to get something that Kyle touched on. You're going to get value on that. You know, for fourteen dollars, this is yeah. pretty good rosé. You know, and here we are drinking rosé Monday. Kermit Lynch. Well, that's nice it's always our job to drink drink good wine on Monday at noon. That's, sure, that's the yeah, deal. Right. That's what we do around here. <laughs> so it's a, well, Kyle, that's cool. You know, I I wondered about that because um, I get so many calls from you know, stocks and, you know, different buys and things like that. And I see so much online. And that's why I wondered if, if you had, you know, some serious, serious customers that you can go back to Absolutely. time after time after time. And it's just a, hey, would you like a case of or a mixed case of or whatever? And do they buy mixed or do they tend to yeah, buy? Absolutely. I look at their order history, their purchasing. I call it their purchase power. Is this person a whale? Do they drop? three thousand dollars on one order that's a spendy that's order. not me so and i think in life it's much easier to buy something from someone that you like and yeah. relationship is everything in the wine industry you can you can ruin a wine that is extraordinary with um you know a bad phone call or a bad call on an account like sante it it will make or break a winery in, a, in an account and when i call the um the consumer I try to be their friend. I try to make them feel very comfortable to spend thousands you're not, you're of You're not the wolf of Wall Street. Huh? No. You got to do it now, now, now. That yeah. was my style in the beginning, but I've learned that, you know, a person that is surrounded by yes men, that's not going to work for them. They like to be sold, and I will do that. I'm not calling them to... to Everybody does. And especially but people... done well. Especially the, the guys at the top of the food chain. I've had stockbrokers say, hey, man, you, you should you should come to Manhattan and work for me. <laughs> and I tell them to stay thirsty and I'll make I'll sure. I'll stay here yeah. in California. Um, but making, making a strong recommendation for an amount of wine that some people might think is too much is, is where I pay my bills. You know, I, I, I won't, I won't say you should get six bottles. No, you should get five cases. And, <laughs> At the at go. the end of <laughs> at the end of five years, when you've got two cases left, you'll be really happy and, that you have and, those and two see, cases. And see, I'm still stretching over 
do I go back and buy a couple more of those Shen Blues? Do I, you know, again, and I, yes. I, them ag- blues. I agonize over some of these purchases, and other times I'll just buy cases. You know, it's just, it's. Yeah, and the one thing that I think is so common right now is, I mean, I'm sure between the. Down to 52 bucks. Between the, the five of us, right. we've probably gotten <laughs> between 10 and 15 emails in the last half hour and we skim over our emails. I think that a lot of wineries spend a lot of time making their emails pretty with nice pictures and long descriptors of how their wines have that, you know, beautiful black fruit and a lot of people just, it doesn't resonate with them. So they get a phone call. They appreciate that. And at the end of the phone call, you know, hopefully they buy more wine than they would have on an email, which is where I think I bring value to the winery. An email is, this is one wine that is available. I basically open up the keys to the seller and will send them wine until they tell me to stop. I like that concept, man. <laughs> that is so good. I've so. been I've been saying lately that uh, the wine isn't actually made until it's sold. So in my mind, Kyle is, uh, you know, Kyle's a winemaker, just like just as much as anybody else. It's, uh, if like if it. you can make it all you want, but if nobody's buying it and nobody's selling it, it might as well not exist. Sure. Well, I will say this. I, I tried to make wine. I worked a sorting table. That's just about the worst gig in the world. <laughs> Punch downs is really not my thing. And a bottling line, God bless the people that work a bottling line. It is I, noisy. I tried to get you on the bottling I, line for about a half an hour I, one day. I, I refuse. And um, it is a tremendous amount of labor that goes into any bottle of wine. And I think that at the end of the day, what makes a bottle of wine bring value is how much work went into that bottle of wine. And it always is in the vineyard. Always. You cannot polish a turd. You nope, have to. You can't do it. You, you have to put as much work and effort into the vineyard. And at the end of the day, um, I think any wine worth its weight is in the vineyard. Kyle, how does anybody get in touch with you? Uh, well, that's that's the mysterious part. I you I, just pop up. Huh? Yeah, I just call on you. Your phone. Yeah, just okay. stand by. I'm I'm hey, on my he's, way. He's there. Um, <laughs> I, I work with. I, I'll quickly plug a few of the wineries that I do Good. work with. Um, Three Sticks in Sonoma Valley. Love them. Love one em. of my favorites. I am currently with Robert Craig in Napa Valley. I feel like they are incredibly value driven Napa Cabernet at the highest level. Absolutely. Very Bordeaux in style too. Not the overripe super fruit bomb luscious style. Um, I work with Senegal Estate, which is a new winery in uh, St. Helena owned by the family that also owns Costco. So they have the coin to make an extraordinary... Costco? Yes. Okay. It, All right. You've heard of them? Yeah. Okay. Small yeah. little uh, <laughs> chain. Yeah. Yeah. Little retail store. Yeah. And um, they are fantastic people that put all of the resources that it requires to and make an extraordinary amazing winemaker. Extra- Tony Biaggi is killing it. Yeah, and Ryan Noth is is a stud too. Um, and then Paul Hobbs, of course, I think that he has one of the best followings of anyone that I sell. I, I feel like some of them have Paul Hobbs tramp stamp tattoos because they're that <laughs> excited about this wine. Um, and then my, my personal favorite, because it brings so much value and I cannot have enough California Pinot Noir in my glass, is uh, Kanzler Family Vineyards in the Sebastopol Hills. Danny Faye. Danny Faye's my guy. Hi, Danny. And I'll tell you, you know, (laughs) we touched on value. I think that even at every price point um, that of the wines that I sell, they bring value. Paul Hobbs has the $500 Tokalon Cabernet. 
if you want to see God with a bottle of red wine, put 15 years on a bottle of the Tokelon Cabernet. I don't and... have 15 years to see God. I need to see God now. Well, <laughs> you can make... <laughs> I got some Grenache for you, <laughs> And he's coming. <laughs> All right. Hey, man, thanks for joining us Absolutely. today. Absolutely. My uh, pleasure. You know, Thank you. Cheers, brought, guys. brought a uh, whole different uh, atmosphere to, uh, the, to the table today. So, Bart Hansen? You are going to be busy uh, coming up here, and we'll talk about your Chenin Blanc. And Mr. Casey, you have been extra busy. Just I will. I will. Well, I have been busy, but I will be drinking Bar Chenin Blanc. Are you going to help bottle? You know what? I I wanted to ask that. I didn't want to know if I wanted to do it on air. You kind of just pushed me into the yeah, corner. You know, there. that's what I'm here for. So you just put baby in the corner. I'm going to say, I, can I come help you bottle? You should work the sorting table. I was going to say, <laughs> as, as long as you keep your fingers out of the machines, we may be able to arrange yeah. that. Some, there you uh, go. Right. Some loose, some uh, I love Lucy moments there. With <laughs> Bart, yeah, Brian, drinking a little too much. Drinking huh? Chen and Blanc on the line. And what's going on with you this week, buddy? Uh, you're just busy week in yeah. 16600 land. Actually, uh, by the time you will hear this, I'll have gone to the wine and weed symposium later this week. Right. Uh, and that will be, uh, that should be really interesting. Well, A lot of people trying to figure out what's going on in both of those worlds right now. Let's talk about that next week. Okay. All right. All right. So, hey, everybody, thanks for listening to The Winemakers. Uh, I'm John Myers. Uh, we've had Brian Casey, Bart Hansen, Kyle Harris, and Sam Katuri. So, we'll talk to you next week, guys. Thanks a lot Cheers. for listening. The proceeding was a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Find our other great shows on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at RadioMisfits.com. Thank you.